0: Here we are again at the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with me, Robert Louis Abrahamson. We've arrived at Canto 20 of Dante's Inferno. It's an odd canto with weird sights and a long historical account from Virgil. It can be a puzzling canto, but I'm sure we'll find some important insights here. After all, as we see near the beginning of this canto, Dante prays that we may gather fruit from our reading here let's do our best. The canto begins with Dante the poet speaking directly to us about his poem, an an unusual move for any writer. He's announcing that he has to present now a new kind of pain in this 20th canto. Uh, Of course he has to present new pains in each of his cantos, doesn't he? So why does he say that just here? Maybe we'll see some significance in this later. Dante the Pilgrim is eager to see what comes next on his tour and peers down into this fourth ditch of the circle of fraud to see crowds of people in slow procession silently weeping. But on second glance Dante notices something horribly strange. Each person down there has his or her neck twisted around so that while they are walking forwards their heads are facing backwards. Maybe someone with a palsy or something might have suffered like this, Dante speculates, but but he's never seen anyone like this, nor does he ever expect to. And here is his prayer that we may gather fruit from reading this by imagining how the sight of these contorted human bodies are moving him to tears. It isn't quite that they are weeping, he's seen plenty of that, and it isn't quite that their bodies are twisted, But it's the combination of these two so that the tears they are weeping are running down the face, then the back, and down along the crack of their backside. All this is too much for Dante, who leans against a bit of the rock edge of the bridge, weeping himself. Virgil will have none of this, however. You still don't get it, he says to Dante. You're showing pity down here when even God doesn't. And then, perhaps to get Dante to focus on something other than his own feelings, Virgil continues, Now, wipe your eyes and take a look over there. That's Amphiarius, who saw into the future and knew he would die at the siege of Thebes and tried to run away, but the earth opened and swallowed him up, and down to Minos he fell for judgment. You can see the way his shoulder blades are in the place of his chest because he thought he could see ahead and control his fate. So we realize this must be the place where soothsayers or fortune-tellers are being held. Oh, and over there, Virgil says, over there is Tiresias, whose body was twisted around into a different shape when he was changed from a man to a woman and then twisted back again when he shifted from a woman back to a man and Virgil points out several other reputed magicians and soothsayers from classical stories, finally focusing on Manto, the daughter of Tiresias, on whom Virgil's male gaze notices that, with her head facing backwards, her long hair hides her breasts, and now all her hairy parts are on one side of her. Virgil then gives a long story about Manto's wanderings to find a suitable home, a story that includes a detailed description of rivers and lakes in northern Italy, which flow down into a swampy region, a desolate place where the waters run dry in the summer. That's where she decided to settle, on a bit of firm ground in the middle of the swamp, a good place where no one would bother her as she practiced her magic. After she died there, people gradually came to populate that area, a safe place protected by the swamp, and the city they built there they named after Manto, the city of Mantua, which in fact was Virgil's birthplace. He charges Dante to correct anyone if he should hear a different story about his native city's origins. Don't let any lies cover over the truth, he concludes. Oh, of course, Dante says, I'm convinced by your explanation, don't worry. That was a nice story, but, but I can't get my mind off all those people down below. Can, can you point out some other significant ones? And so, Virgil names yet more soothsayers, fortune-tellers and magicians, both ancient and more modern. But then he stops himself, it's getting late, and they'd better get going. And the canto ends as they get moving on their way to the next ditch. There are basically four sections to this canto, with an overture and a coda. In the introduction, Dante speaks in his own voice, as though, having taken on various other identities in the previous canto, he now takes on one more, his most appropriate and immediate identity, the poet, consciously constructing his long poem. And maybe he considers that, having followed him now through 19 cantos, we feel intimate enough for him to remove the fourth wall, we might say, and speak for a minute about the craft of writing these cantos. Then we get a description of the sinners in this ditch, their thrown bodies, to use a good Scots word. Virgil speaks a lot in this canto, giving us one section describing four prominent figures here then his long digression about Manto and Mantua and the northern Italian landscape, and then goes on to point out four more magicians or soothsayers going from the ancient world up nearly to Dante's own time and ending with a crowd of women fortune-tellers. And then in a coda, he notices how late it's getting and gets moving. No sinner speaks in this canto. No sinner even notices Dante and Virgil looking down at them. I think this tells us something about the psychological condition Dante is depicting here. We have people whose faces are looking behind. In other words, they're not looking at the people they appear to be addressing. My body is turned to you, but not my mind. Yes, in real life you can see my face and you can hear me speak, but in actuality you're not seeing my real face, and my twisted neck keeps any genuine utterance from coming out. And why? Because these people are fraudulent. The flatterers we've just seen used plenty of words, words to flatter you. But if these mountebanks use words, it's only to fool you. They hold their real selves behind their back. Dante, as usual, focuses on one specific instance of a larger sin. He presents to us fortune-tellers, people who seem able to predict the future. And maybe Dante thinks such insight into the future is indeed possible. But it's a sin, especially when someone does this for money. The future is not a commodity to sell. In one sense, the person predicting the future is trespassing on God's domain. It's not up to us to know the future. We can certainly observe trends and predict what might happen if things go on the way they are, but remember, it's Dame Fortune who spins the way things ultimately turn out. Or in modern terms, there's always the chance that something may turn out differently from what we expect. And let's consider this. Why do people want to know the future? Presumably so they can control events. But how does that work? Look what good it did to Amphiarius, who seemed to have seen accurately into the future and to have known that he would die at the siege of the Seven against Thebes. So he hid when they started preparing for war. He thought to circumvent his fate. But his wife betrayed his location, and he had to go lead his part of the army at the siege. So here he was, at the spot he had predicted he would die at but he was still trying to avoid the fate he'd accurately foreseen. He, he ran away, seeking safety, but as he ran, the earth opened up under his feet and he plunged to his death. <laughs> so 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 what good did his prediction do him? Instead of looking ahead into the future, perhaps, he would have done better to stay in the present and look what was before him right there. Maybe then he might have seen that gaping hole in front of him and avoided that. Predicting the future is actually a sterile activity, and it's worth noting that in the middle of the canto comes the story of Manto, who searched for a home all around these fertile regions of Italy, areas full of life-giving water, but settled to practice her magic in a stagnant swamp solitary and sterile. Another kind of fortune-telling is astrology, of which there are several practitioners in this canto. These people read the heavens to predict the future. Whether Dante thinks this is really possible or not doesn't seem the point. Let's assume that for Dante, as for many in the Middle Ages, astrology was a legitimate, accurate form of knowledge. But what was not legitimate was to use it for one's own ends. And this gives a clue to the larger sin being treated here. We're looking at the abuse of knowledge. Of course it's important to gather knowledge and to try our best to understand the world. It's also important, as we've said, to predict the trends leading into the future. But not to pretend we can know the future with absolute certainty. Human beings simply do not have that kind of knowledge. But it's also wrong, as I think Dante wants us to see that these sinners here were doing, wrong to use this knowledge for our own ends, to gain money or fame or power over others. Knowledge is given to us in order to serve the community. We saw in the last canto that the divine flame of Pentecostal fire descended onto the heads of the apostles to inspire them with the knowledge of God, but the simoniacs, perverting the things of God, now have that fire burning at the opposite end, on their feet. Similarly, knowledge, which strengthens our insight into the things of the world around us to help us move through the world more easily, has here twisted the head so that it not only cannot address the world before it, but is not even in sync with its own body, not helping us see more clearly, but distorting the way things are supposed to be. A beard now hanging down the back, a head of long hair now covering the breast and reaching down to the pubic hair. Dante weeps here because, as Charles Williams says, he sees the physical contortion of the human form. All is gone awry, all is perverted. Like the simoniacs, these sinners are violating God's property. But because they are also using this violation for selfish purposes, they find themselves much lower than those burning sands it would be good to spend time looking at Virgil's long account of the founding of Mantua, but I think we'll only just notice that there is some controversy over this account which contradicts the account Virgil gives in his Aeneid. In this canto about the proper use of knowledge, how do we understand this? Especially when Virgil makes a point of insisting that Dante correct any other version of the founding of the city, and especially perhaps in the context of Dante's having just made a similar point in the previous canto of correcting the false stories about why he broke the baptismal cylinder at the Church of San Giovanni. The deeper we get into the realm of fraud, the more important is the truth and right use of knowledge. Well, there's more that we could say about the canto here, but we'll let it go for now and move on to the next canto, which starts a series of cantos filled with wild action. See you next time.